Okay. So, it's nice to see you all. We have a good crowd here today. It's a beautiful, turned out to be a beautiful day. There were threats of storms coming and we seem to have avoided those. So 99% of the time, I preach on the gospel. Today, though, I just love those first for a couple of passages from Exodus. Last week, we, did, we focused on Exodus 1 and 2, and I was supposed to preach, and I wrote a fabulous sermon. <laughs> Trust me. And then I got sick. You can still hear it in my throat a little bit. Has tested negative for COVID. I'm good. I've been sick for days, not spreading anything anymore. Um, but I didn't get to preach the sermon. And then this week, um, my friend Brian was supposed to, or colleague Brian was supposed to preach, and he's sick. So I'm preaching for him, um, but he made a little joke. So in the Episcopal Church, or most mainstream Christian churches, we follow a three-year lectionary, if you're familiar with that. And so every three years, theoretically, we cover most of the Bible. Not really, but. And so I said to Brian, darn, I don't get to preach my sermon. He said, don't worry, you're all set for 2026. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to really focus in on Exodus today. And I feel like this passage that we're reading today is one of the, the most important passages in the Hebrew Bible. It is Moses meets God. Moses is commissioned to liberate God's people from Egypt. Egypt and, God, and Moses receives um, the revelation of God's sacred name. So a lot happens in this little passage. Before we get to today, I want to just recap what happened in the first couple of chapters very quickly. Try to be quick about it. Um, so we know how we landed where we are today. So um, starting back with Joseph, do y'all remember Joseph? There was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's youngest son, Joseph, who was run out of Israel by his brothers and ended up in Egypt. And because he was a very clever man, he ended up being the um, most trusted advisor to the Pharaoh. And so he ended up landing on his feet and becoming quite successful. And so when um, his brothers came from Israel into Egypt when there was a famine and they were starving, they were welcomed with open arms because Pharaoh loved Joseph and so he welcomed the Hebrew people. In the beginning of Exodus, what happens is that Pharaoh dies and a new Pharaoh comes into to power and he's threatened by the Hebrew people. There are, he thinks there's a lot, too many of them, right? And if something, if war breaks out and they turn on him, they will, um, they'll win. Now, realistically, there weren't really that many, right? That started with 70 and then they, you know, reproduced and had more kids and they had a very strong Hebrew expat community in Egypt. Um, but the Pharaoh was threatened by that and so he kept trying to figure out how to control that and he finally put out a, an edict saying that all little baby Hebrew boys that were born had to be killed. Remember this? Sound familiar? So when Moses was born, his mother took him and hid him. And when she was ready, she put him in a basket and put him in the reeds in the Nile River. And Pharaoh's daughter found him and eventually took him home and raised him as her own son. So Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household. Now, Pharaoh's daughter knew that he was a Hebrew baby. I don't know what Pharaoh knew. He might have been a little suspicious. Suddenly his daughter shows up with a little baby boy. We don't really know. And I don't know what Moses knew, but my sense is that he didn't really understand his whole heritage. So under this new Pharaoh, the Hebrew people were enslaved. And they were not treated well at all, which is often the case in slavery, right? 
So, but, but, but Moses grows up as an Egyptian boy in luxury, right? He has a nice life. He goes out one day into the fields and he's watching all of these Hebrew um, slaves toiling in the fields in the hot sun. And, you know, he's just sort of t taking it all in. And then he sees an Egyptian man come up and beat one of the Hebrew men who's out in the field. And this enrages Moses. So Moses, when he, he carefully looks to make sure no one's watching him. There's no one to see him, no witnesses. And he goes out and he kills the Egyptian man and he buries him in the sand. And then he runs home. The next day, um, he goes back out and he sees two Hebrew men in a fight. And he immediately decides that one of them is in the wrong and the other one is, is uh, you know, the victim. So he goes forward and he says to the man that he believes to be in the wrong, why are you beating your Hebrew brethren? And he said, who are you to be the, the ruler and the judge of us? Right? Who do you think you are? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian man yesterday? And Moses suddenly realizes, like, oh, somebody did see me. They know that I did it. So he races home to hide away. But in the meantime, Pharaoh hears this story and decides that he needs to kill Moses. So Moses runs away. And he runs to a place called Midian, which is <coughs> an Arab land close to Egypt, but not a part of Egypt. And we find he sits down at a well to rest. And he sees these seven young women coming out over to the well, shepherdesses, and they're coming to water their flock. And then these other shepherds come in and drive them off and won't allow them to get to the water. And again, Moses sees this. He's a pretty righteous guy. And he's like, this is not okay. So he stands up and he goes and he rescues the women. And he makes sure that they're able to water their flock. And then they, they leave. They go home um, to their father, who is this Midian priest that's referenced in today's reading. And the, priest, the father says, why didn't you bring him home with you? And, and we could have given him dinner. So they go back and they get Moses and they bring him home. <clears throat> and the priest, they give him dinner and the priest says, why don't you stay with us and become a part of our family? Marry my daughter. And so Moses does. And he marries the daughter and she gives him first one son and later on another son and this becomes his life so he was raised in this beautiful you know pharaoh's family and now he is a, a shepherd in Midian and he makes a statement at one point that I think is really interesting I am now a foreigner in a foreign land and that's the hint to me that he didn't know of his Hebrew heritage because he didn't ever feel like a foreigner in Egypt they all assumed he was an Egyptian man. Um, but here he's starting to feel what it is like to not be in your homeland. And I think it gives him a softer heart, um, even more so than he had before towards the Hebrew people. So that brings us to where we start today, right? So he is um, out, the, the shepherd that he is, he goes out with the flock one afternoon. And he takes them further than usual. He takes them out through the, the wilderness to the um, base of Mount Horeb. And that is the mountain of God. And he's minding his own business, watching the flock, doing what shepherds do. And he notices a burning bush. Now, this is hot, hot desert land. There's scrub brush around here. Probably wasn't unusual to see a brush fire from time to time. And it's possible, you know, he'd see it and walk past it. Maybe he would hurry past it to get the, 
the flock out of, out of danger from the fire, or maybe he'd throw sand on it to, to put the fire out. But, for, but something today caught his attention, and he stopped. And he looked at the fire, and he's sort of like, what's going on here? The fire's burning, blazing, but the bush isn't being consumed. This is not normal. So he's sort of riveted to this. And suddenly he hears this voice come to him, Moses, Moses. And he says, here, here I am, right? It's a voice out of nowhere. It's a very similar, it's, it's a, it reminds me of many prophetic calls that we hear. It reminds me when Samuel is called in the night. It's not an unusual thing, but, you know, Moses doesn't know what's going on at this point. And then the voice says to him, don't, come no closer, right? Don't come any closer to the fire. It's dangerous, right? But then he makes this fabulous, he says this fabulous line. He says, the grand... Take off your sandals. The ground on which you are standing is holy ground. Take off your sandals. The ground on which you are standing is holy ground. I love that line, and we'll get back to that in a minute. It's sort of this great revelation of the space. The idea that the very soil that he's standing on, the dirt beneath his feet, is sacred. God is present here in this moment. Then the voice goes on to identify himself, this declaration, this revelation of God's name. I'm the God of your father, and the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I have heard your people crying out for help, your people who are enslaved in Egypt, and they are in, in agony and misery, and I've come to set them free. I have come to lead them out of Egypt to out of bondage, to the, to the land of milk and honey. And you, Moses, are the one that's going to lead them. And in a typical response that you find in these prophetic calls, Moses is like, who am I? Not, I'm not me. I'm not the right guy for this. Right? It reminds me of Jeremiah who responds to God, I'm just a boy. I'm nobody. Why are you asking me to do this? Right? Pretty common response when God asks you to do a really big thing. And God says, don't worry, I'll be with you every step of the way. Don't worry about it. And then Moses says, well, who do I tell them? I say, I, I was sent by the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, but what do I tell them if they ask me your name? And, and God says, tell them I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Mm -hmm. And it's this really beautiful, powerful passage um, and it, it, again, it begins this revelation of sacred space, the idea that the very, the very soil itself is holy. The dirt beneath our feet is sacred. This unremarkable place, right? This little dusty side of the road with some scrub brush is sacred. God is here in this place. It's, it's not a stretch for us where we are here. Look out that window, right? We are used to looking out at this spectacular scene, and we know, you feel the presence of God. It seems so clear. It's hard to look out at this, even with the beautiful clouds, right? It's, beautiful. it's hard to look out at that mountain and not say, God is so present here, right? People are drawn to places like this because they feel a sense of God's 
God's self and the divinity and the sacred here. Um, the ancient Celts had this theory that heaven and earth weren't separated by really that much distance, but that there are places on this, in this world that that distance collapses to just a very thin veil, and that, that the, the divine and the human are, are coming into contact with one another. You can feel the presence of the divine more profoundly than you would in other places. They call those thin places. And I've always thought that this is a thin place, right? You feel God's presence here. You feel some sort of transformative energy, even if it's just for a moment. But that's not what God is saying to Moses. God didn't say, look up at that beautiful mountain. Isn't it extraordinary? Or look at that powerful fire, how it's burning and so hot. Isn't that amazing? No, he said, look at the dirt. Look at the ground at your feet. I am there. God is everywhere. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place you are standing is holy ground. The dirt itself is sacred. It is the same dirt from which God scooped up a handful and breathed life into the first human being. It is the ground from which all vegetation grows. It is our life, and we are a part of it. And the dirt beneath our feet is holy. God is present here. So remove your sandals. Draw away that covering that has protected your feet. Clear away the barrier between you and that that is sacred so that you can feel the earth under your feet. Touch it and feel the, the sand between your toes and let that holy ground become a part of you. This living soil that, co that, that coats your feet in dirt. Sound very pleasant. <laughs> but... Um, it becomes part of you. It gives you life and is sacred. The sand and the loam and the rocks become the ground of your being. God is everywhere if you open yourself to that possibility. Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was a, a British filmmaker who um, went on a mission. He said, for one year, I'm going to go barefoot. Do any of you guys remember this? See, they called him the Soul Man, S-O-L-E. So he went ba barefoot for an entire year, which I, I can't really even imagine or even want to think about. Um, but they showed him, you know, he, he went, visited Norway and trampled through, tromped through snow in his bare feet. And he was walking through the hot, dirty streets of Shanghai where the pavement was so hot he could barely put his feet down for an entire year. Um, he lived into this Exodus passage more than any of us probably would want to think about doing. Um, and he found that when you take off your shoes, you become more aware of the world around you. You feel it in a different way. You become aware of what you're standing on, right? You can feel every rock and the sand between your toes and the grass, the, the, the wood at your feet, the roughness of the carpet. Right? Every surface. And the soul man said, it opens your eyes. You're suddenly in touch with everything around you. And it feels like you're a little child discovering the world for the first time. As Moses took off his shoes, the ground didn't suddenly become sacred. 
he came to understand that it had always been sacred. And he could feel and experience the holiness that is always present, just beneath the sole of his shoe. It's a funny thing, being barefoot. Do you ever go barefoot, any of you? Do you like being barefoot? Mm -hmm. I love, as a kid, I hated shoes. I would go barefoot 24 hours a day if I could. I lived in California, so I could more often than I can here. Um, and unless I was at school or at church or at the market or something, I was barefoot, running around the house, running around the yard, running around the neighborhood. There's something very freeing about being barefoot, right? There's also something really vulnerable about being barefoot. And it's not just the nail that I stepped on as a kid and had to go get a tetanus shot. It's not just the, the, the scratches and the splinters and all of that. Um, but there's just something oddly vulnerable just standing here. So I had my shoes off today. Some of you noticed, some of you didn't. It makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I'm sitting there thinking, everyone's looking at her, why is she have her shoes off? It's kind of weird. It's a little sacrilegious or something, I don't know. But there's something that makes me feel, and I have terrible feet, I hate my feet. I'm embarrassed to go get a pedicure, but when I took my shoes off this morning, I thought, oh man, I wish I'd gotten a pedicure. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but there is something so vulnerable and humbling about standing up here in front of you all with bare feet. Shoes provide this little layer of protection from the elements that give us comfort and a little bit of ease. And perhaps also, though, separate us from what is sacred, symbolically at least, right? Shoes, our clothing are like an armor protecting us. This robe that I wear makes me feel safer standing up here. It feels like I've got this protection. I can stand in front of you and not feel quite so vulnerable, right? The idea of taking it off makes, raises my anxiety level a little bit. It's part of the uniform and it protects me. And so I, I, I don't feel as vulnerable with this on. Isn't that funny? It's just a little piece of cloth. I don't think we have to literally remove our shoes, although you are more than welcome to if you choose to, um, or our robes to feel the dirt beneath our feet, to feel the holiness around us. If we take our shoes off metaphorically, what in your life provides protection but also keeps you separate from the sacred and from one another? Ego, pride, over, overly self-reliance, self responsibility, power, prestige, or just distractions, right? I guess the question I ask myself is what distracts me in my day-to-day -day life from really noticing the burning bush, stopping and truly attending to that bush. And what do I do and put in place to seemingly protect myself that is keeping me from really recognizing and engaging with the divine, the sacred? And how different would my life be if I set aside those distractions and those protections even for a moment and allowed myself to be vulnerable, to be humble, to allow the glory of the universe, the power of the dust beneath my feet to transform me. And so instead of actually taking off our shoes, do it in a spiritual sense. I challenge each of us to humble ourselves and to be vulnerable to each other.
to open ourselves up and really be ourselves to one another, showing our, our ugly feet and our battered souls. Reach out our hands to each other, and it is in that humility and vulnerability that we crack open just a little bit, and we let the sacred in, and we let one another in. Imagine taking those shoes off and feeling maybe a little anxiety, a little embarrassment, but sit with that for a minute, right? And allow the holy to enter in. With our metaphorical shoes off, we can be our true selves, the ones that God created us to be. And this is us, no shoes, just us. And we're neither self-righteous or overly self-reliant because we admit that we are flawed beings. And we realize that as we crack ourselves open and let one another in, that is with one another and in our humility and in our vulnerability that we actually can be truly extraordinary as God meant us to be. Amen. Mm -hmm.